0: Hey, everybody. My name is John Mark Day, and I serve as the Director of Leadership and Campus Life at Oklahoma State University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. When I started working on this podcast, one of my goals was to understand how Different students experience leadership development, so I'm thrilled to get to talk uh, with an expert in in some students to talk about something personally important to me, which is leadership development for first generation students. To do that, I've asked Bridget Belling to come and join us. Uh, Bridget currently serves as the Director of Community Support and Leadership at the George Washington University. She leads a team who specializes in programming for first-generation transfer and graduate students, as well as leadership development for all undergrads. She and her team also offer support to students from low socioeconomic backgrounds through their work with The Store, which is GW's student-run food pantry. Prior to that role, she served as the Director of Administration and Hallmark Programs, uh, implementing undergraduate orientation annually for 5,000 students. Uh, She has also served as Assistant Director of Student Activities at the George Washington University and has previously served as the Manager of the College and University Program at the American Association of University Women, where she focused on community organizing, uh, national outreach, and teaching college women how to design campaigns to run for elected office. Uh, Bridget has built this career deeply committed to student success and community engagement, uh, which leads her to her current role also serving as an advocacy group member for NASPA's Center for First-Generation Student Success. Uh, Bridget received her Master's in Education in Educational Policy and Leadership, and her Bachelor's in Social Work from Marquette. Uh, Welcome, Bridget. I'm really excited to have you here.
1: Thank you, John Mark. I'm excited to be here, too.
0: Awesome. So uh, we're going to start off getting to know Bridget a little bit uh, more. Uh, Full disclosure, Bridget, I actually go way back. Uh, You and I, Bridget, we first met in 2011 at the Donna Imbrossa Mid-Level Management Institute sponsored by ACPA, which 2011 feels like so long ago at this point. I actually had to look up how long ago that that was that we met. And so, you know, now that we're in, in 2019, if you were to go back as a speaker and, and meet the two of us in 2011, what advice would you give to us from 2019?
1: You know, that's, that's a great question, and I, I had to laugh when, um, you know, when I saw this question. Uh, I think I would say, well, I, I'm an avid reader, so I definitely would say to read more because I, I don't think I could ever you know, do that enough. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I would encourage us, to continue to ask for feedback uh, in our careers sooner and more broadly and from more more people that we work with to continue to learn and grow. Uh, and then I think I would also probably say to continue to to build the networks that we have with our colleagues at various institutions across the country and to continue to keep those up. You know, I mean I think I think it's great that we've been in touch since 2011, and and that has provided opportunities for us to you know, um, collaborate on conference proposals and collaborative projects, create a friendship and and, and it's even led to this podcast so uh, i certainly I certainly would recommend that route
0: yeah, I, I agree you know I th- I'm so you know thankful for the friends and the colleagues that I have made in this field, and yeah, I think about the great experiences that we have had the chance to have together and and you know not knowing going into that, that first conference the relationships that, that was going to lead to, and, and what a great privilege that has been.
1: Also, let me add one more thing. I would also encourage, you know, I think some of the the specialty conferences that are hosted within our field can be really helpful to to foster those relationships. I think I was just having a conversation with, um, you know, a graduate student in our area who's going to be attending NASPA National for the first time, um, and so it was kind of working with him on on some ideas on how to uh, make that big conference, you know, feel a little bit smaller when it's the first time you've been there. So I think I think that's the other beauty of of taking the opportunity to engage in some of these specialty conferences like the Donna Barassa Mid-Level Management Institute because it allows, you know, some more in-depth uh, community building for, for, for colleagues and for networking.
0: Yeah, that community is so strong and so important, I think, as you, especially as you move up in your career and change roles, having that network is vital. Um, so I, I saw, you know, this summer you got to fulfill one of my life dreams, and you saw Hamilton live in person, which, uh, it, you know, that's a huge life goal of mine. So I know that you are a big fan of Lin-Manuel Miranda, just like I am. Did the show live up to the hype? I,
1: I I can't even tell you what a fantastic life decision it was to see that show live. <laughs> mm, <laughs> so if I you're able so to, yeah, seriously, I, you know, I mean, I think – we had listened to the soundtrack religiously for at least a year or so before seeing the show live. It just was always something that was on in our house, um, so I was very familiar with the music, the lyrics, and the story, and I had been following Lin-Manuel Miranda on social media and also had the opportunity to see one of his plays, one of his first plays in the Heights um, here at the Kennedy Center, which turns out to have a fantastic subplot with one of the characters being a first-gen college student, so... Oh, also, yeah. I would add that to your list if you haven't seen that. It is a fantastic, fantastic musical. Um, so I was pretty, you know, I was pretty familiar with the show Hamilton and with Lin-Manuel's work prior to seeing it live. Um, and even with that level of fami- familiarity and you know knowing the power of live theater from mm. different experiences that I'd seen with other musicals live, I was not prepared for what an impact seeing that show live would have on me. It was just, I mean, it sounds cliche to say it, but it was just so powerful. Mm. Um, You know, his use of quick wit and his intentional use of diverse characters to show how America is made up of immigrants and the importance of them laying the groundwork for America to be as it is today and seeing that all live on stage was just, it was just incredibly powerful. So. I mean, so much so that I I recently convinced a coworker to buy tickets, um, who was hesitating. So I, I, you know, I guess I think Lynn Manuel sometimes should probably consider paying me for the amount of advertising I'm giving the show for him. Yeah. But alas, here we are.
0: You know, hey, maybe yeah, he'll
1: he'll hear this podcast.
0: That's right. Like, good for you for discovering this unknown show and really getting <laughs> word out there. Yeah, I just think that's that's an important role that we play. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, that's what I, you know, I, I talked a little bit at, at, at NASA a couple of years ago on creativity and leadership, and, I, and we talked about Hamilton as this example of a way to reimagine what leadership looks like and even what these stories that we have heard for years and years and years about the founding of our country some true, some not, but just this lens that that gives us to look at those things differently. Agreed. Well, you know, so speaking of, of that, you know, you currently get to teach leadership uh, and be a student affairs professional in the, in the nation's capital, where you are surrounded by so many examples and stories. What's it like being a student affairs professional and teaching leadership in Washington, D.C.?
1: <laughs> I mean, never a dull moment certainly, <laughs> certainly comes to mind, you know, especially as it relates to living in such a political city, Um, you know with so many politicians and and where we really feel elections here in the city Um, but the many conversations that that also allows us to have around ethics and leadership uh, with our students as well you know I mean I think yeah I would say it's great it's it's interesting it's uh, there certainly is plenty of of topics uh, to cover (laughs) in what we Mm -hmm. see in our day-to-day lives here so so it's great
0: yeah, that's, I think that's really cool. You know, one of the things I always talk about when I talk about leadership is we. it's a value-neutral term, right? There's great positive leadership. There's also negative leadership. And I think for better or for worse, you're in a place where you get to see that sort of lived out and enacted daily.
1: Yeah, it's, it is certainly different than any other place in the country, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The unique
1: experience.
0: So, other than kind of just the city that you're in and getting those experiences, what else are you reading or watching outside of the traditional leadership canon uh, that's giving you some insights into leadership right now?
1: You know, I actually have I have a couple answers for this. Um, one more traditional and one less traditional. So we'll start with the with the less traditional. You know, I I, I would say that I often look for examples of how leadership is portrayed in movies or you know, on current media, in order to find material that is relatable for students, right? So yeah. to, to kind of meet them where they're at. Um, and I recently watched the Netflix special on the Fire Festival, um, which is a musical music festival that, uh, you know, experienced some significant challenges
0: I, I think it's putting it mildly, yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm throwing some kindness that way, right? Yes, uh, right. <laughs> you know, and though I, I I would have reservations about showing that documentary based on some of the content that's in it. Um, mm. You know, while I was watching it, i I kept wondering where the red flags were in the minds of some of the people who are involved in the festival planning. and I, I I just think the documentary really shows how people can get swept up in the belief in a leader and, and how excited they can be to not let a leader down, sometimes, you know, to the detriment of, the, of themselves or, or others. Um, you know, and there was many examples throughout the documentary that people raised concerns um, through the planning, um, but their belief in the vision that the, that the person who was leading had laid out and this grand vision that they were going to have this you know, create this amazing experience that no one had had before. You know, that always seemed to prevail over any gut reactions or any instincts that may have that they may that they may have felt inside to to go a different route or to to stand up more to to some of the leaders that were involved in planning it. So, you know, I just think it shows the, the value of critical thinking, and it's a good reminder to all of us about that because life can move fast sometimes and. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, I think that 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 serves as a a valuable lesson for us as leaders Um, and and the importance of challenging leaders, you know, sometimes with the decisions that that we hear them come forward with. And so so I thought that that was an interesting example of that.
0: That's a really good point, I think, of these times where we – have this hindsight, and we look back and we sort of go, yeah, here are all of these red flags, and how did I not put the pieces together, or how did somebody else not put those pieces together? But at the time, you're right. Everything is happening so fast, and you, th- you start to think, well, maybe I'm the only person who has these concerns Yeah. and the importance of empowering people to really share their voice right there. I think that's such an interesting example of what we can learn from a, a, a very bad example of leadership.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, and something that was, you know, I would like to believe well-intentioned from the beginning, moved too quickly, and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, all of us are human, and <laughs> I'm sure at one time or another, you know, some of us have been in a position where things have moved quickly, and we, we needed to, to slow things down, so yeah. I just think it's a really it's a really good reminder of how we're humans, and, um, you know, like you said, finding a voice, and just, you know, trying to, to find your way through that, so... So that was one that really stood out to me, um, which probably is not at all a traditional way to look at leadership development.
0: I don't know. I think, I mean, there's great lessons that it sounds like are coming from that. Yeah.
1: Uh, Secondly, I think I would say that I've really been enjoying the book Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Um, Mm -hmm. So if that's something that you have not yet picked up, I I would definitely recommend. And I've been enjoying diving into it lately. It's, it was something recommended to me by a current supervisor, and we're reading it as a team, and so that's been that's been good um, to share that that experience as well. But it has some very practical advice in it, and and breaks down barriers that we all put up as humans, who you know from time to time develop these defense mechanisms, but that when doing so and 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 putting those up, that prevents us from showing up with our authentic selves as leaders, and so really just kind of taking some time to kind of pull apart the psychology behind leadership in a different way, which which I thought was really helpful to look at. And and then along with it, there's some helpful, you know, reflection and exercise guides that you can use while reading it uh, as well. So I, th- I think I would say that that's my new favorite leadership book for the moment.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I have read it, and I think you're right. It's so cool to see somebody like Brene Brown who can take – this great research and this great, you know, command of literature in a very specific field, but translate it into a way that's meaningful and is, is useful for people. Uh, I think, boy, that's a, that's a career goal right there is to do some of the things that she does in, in her work. It's just very impressive and something I have a lot of respect for.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think I've seen, you know, there's some similar themes in some of her other books, but she really goes a different route with this and, and uses the information that she's learned from the, you know, the work that she's been doing throughout these years, but applies it in such a different lens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you can really see how, you know, the work that she's done um, through her field and then how she's gone out and, and lectured on that in corporate America and, and in various settings has led her to this new place of, of evolution of thinking around leadership and psychology and how that all, you know, how we as humans are, are sometimes a little bit messy with that and, and how to kind of break that apart when you're looking at how to grow as a leader. So I think it's it's a nice it's a nice tool to have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's switch gears a little bit and, and talk about this leadership development idea for first generation students. Uh, start off, Bridget, just define that term for us. What does it mean to be a first generation student? How how do we define that, and what do we know about supporting those students?
1: Right. So. So the definition that is most commonly used according to the, the a recent NASPA landscape analysis about first-gen programs um, is that neither parent or guardian earned a four-year college degree. And that is also how the common application that's used in many college admissions processes defines it as well. So, Current estimates from the U.S. Department of Education note that 33% of currently enrolled undergraduates are first-generation students. So that gives us a little bit of sense of the landscape nationally, and we see a lot of diversity within the first, within and among the first-generation students. Uh, so keeping intersectional identities in mind is also important when considering this particular population of students. So. You know, students may be first generation and a student of color or first generation and, and come from a low-income background or first generation and a student of color and identify as an LGBTQ student. So mm. it's important to acknowledge that all of those pieces of identity impact a student's experience as well. So I just wanna I want to acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. In terms of what we know about working with first-gen students is, is that they they tend to come to us with you know very diverse life experiences, and as a result, diverse strengths and incredible resilience that that they've developed based on those life experiences that they've had you know prior to coming to college. Um, you know, I work with a number of students who, um, in fact, I was talking to one who you know in preparing my thoughts for this podcast, you know, he shared his life story about how he's always had to be resilient from, Mm -hmm. from a very young age. He was in a position where he was translating, um, for his parents and had to confidently translate medical documents or legal documents in a way that they could understand it at a very, very young age, as early as six, you know? And so when you think about that as a life experience, the resilience and the confidence that you develop as just, you know, just by that being your life experience is certainly notable.
0: Absolutely. And, and I, I would think, too, you know, this idea of responsibility, uh, you know, mm-hmm. sort of your place in, in the in the world and your role. Uh, yeah, and a, that confidence that that leads to, um, I think, is, is a valuable experience, but also a challenge for our students.
1: Right, right. And, and uh, we'll get into a little bit of that a little bit more um, in some of my other thoughts around this topic. But, you know, I, I think it's important to note that they – they come to us from, uh, you know, with different information, different life experiences than the peers that they are in school with, who come from households with parents or guardians who have graduated from college. Mm-hmm. So they may not be as familiar with many of the practices or the jargon that so many of us working in higher education use every day. Uh, and based on a number of different studies, you know, there's a lot of really great work out there right now um, in regards to first-gen students. But... We also know that 1st general students are more likely to come from low-income families, to identify as a racial minority, uh, are often less prepared academically for college, often report more feelings of marginala- marginalization, and experience cultural difficulties. And that's through work that Darlin and Smith did back in 2007, and Pratt and Harwood Carvazos and Ditzfield in 2017, and, and you see these themes come up throughout a lot of different literature. Um, and then in 2001, Susan Choi did some interesting work with the National Center for Education Statistics and found that first-gen students were twice as likely as non-first-generation students to leave four in four-year institutions before the second year. So, wow. So that's just important context to have in terms of how you know, these students' experiences are, are different, and and we see different outcomes and experiences for them as compared to students who, who've come from homes where parents or guardians have attended and graduated from a four-year institution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to me, what I wasn't aware of is how significantly large of a population this is. I mean, 33% means all of us are working with a large number of first generation students at our institutions w- whether we're aware of that or not
1: yeah and it certainly varies by institution you know i mean we are around 14% of our undergraduate population at gw are first in gen, first generation students and it varies and you know you might see certain institutions with much higher but mm-hmm. um, on average nationally yes it's
0: 33% oh so based on that I know NASPA has started this Center for First Generation Student Success that you have been very involved with. Tell us about the center and, and what you're working on there.
1: Sure, that you know I'm excited about the work that they're doing. There are some incredibly dedicated staff who work there alongside um, you know some of us lucky people who get to to join with them in their in their journey with that as well. So the Center for First-Generation Student Success was formed through a partnership between NASPA and the Suter Foundation. And the center is, you know, the premier source for evidence-based practices, professional development, and knowledge creation for the higher ed community in order to advance the success of first-generation students. So they are very new in the sense of they've only existed for a couple years. Um, and and the amount of work that they've been able to 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 pull out and and produce is quite amazing. So, you know, they really emphasize a strength-based or asset-based approach in working with first-generation students, and as you mentioned, I serve as a a member of the advocacy group, which is a group of higher ed professionals from around the country who work on first-generation student success programs and initiatives. And so I get to, you know, from time to time to to serve on calls and um, provide feedback and provide a real experiential lens on some of the things that the center's trying to roll out, which has been a great experience. Mm-hmm. And it certainly has informed you know, my practice as well. So in terms of you know more tangible projects so you can get a sense of that, right now we are currently working on planning the annual First Gen Student Success Conference coming up in June which is one of four conferences with topics related to student success that are all being co-hosted in one location together down in Orlando. Um, So if you haven't checked that out, I would certainly recommend that.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: And, you know, they also recently launched a new program called First Forward, which is pretty exciting. And it's a program that schools can apply to participate in, and then um, if selected, they become a part of this inaugural cohort of schools that are identified as schools that are uh, committed to first-gen student success. So it's a bit of a national recognition program that acknowledges and celebrates a strong institutional commitment to first-gen student success. And so they'll be selecting, the center staff will be selecting an inaugural cohort um, this spring, um, which essentially this group will then Um, Have the opportunity to benefit from some professional development resources and and some goal-setting exercises around their work, and then look to serve as exemplary models in the coming years to other other institutions that are really striving to advance their own efforts towards work with first-generation students. So it's a a pretty exciting new program that they just announced this week uh, and and that uh, people can apply to, schools can apply to, uh, in the next couple weeks um and i know at the end we'll we'll get through we'll mention the website and everything so that folks know where to find more of this information
0: yeah it sounds um, like that could be a really useful opportunity for people to get involved with
1: yeah and i think it's great in the sense of you know i mentioned before the the national landscape survey that the center had conducted and they really found quite a variety of of institutions who are offering such a wide array of programming, and so it's a real opportunity to, to get connected to other schools that are doing that work, so something to look out for.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so that's just, you know, those are a couple of the projects. In the past, we've also worked on creating evaluation tools for first-gen student programs. Um, so, you know, that gives you a sense of kind of some of the work that's going on there, but they're they are a a very dedicated team um, who's doing some great work. That that really is groundbreaking because it's never been, you know, we've never had a landscape analysis where somebody has pulled together institutions from from all over the country to say, how are you defining first-gen students? What do your programs look like? You know, how are faculty engaged with students? And so um, that is also something that can be found on the NASPA first-gen website as well, the findings from that landscape study as well as a number of uh, articles and blogs and, you know, research and a number of other resources. So I highly recommend it.
0: Very cool. I, I want to go back. You talked about the center taking an asset-based approach to working with first-year students. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what that means specifically?
1: Sure. It, it certainly is a, you know, an intentional language choice, I guess I would say. And I, I talk a little bit about this, you um, I will talk a little bit more about this, you know, as we continue on in our conversation, and especially at the end when we talk a little bit more about um, imposter syndrome. But really, what it is 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 acknowledging acknowledging the strengths and keeping that ever present in our mind about the unique and diverse and rich experiences that first gen students bring with them to their college experience, and honoring that in a way that. You know, the way that we talk about it at GW is really, it is our hope that we are partnering with you as a first-gen student and the, the unique experiences and diversity of life experiences that you bring. We see those as strengths, and what we hope to do is partner with you to connect you with information and really help you find the best version of yourself while you're here. And so I think that's a little example, you know, of how we've applied that concept of, of asset-based uh, asset thinking.
0: Yeah, awesome. What else are things for us as leadership educators when we're working to uh, help first-generation students grow as leaders, what are other important considerations for us to keep in mind?
1: You know, I certainly would encourage a, a couple different things I'm thinking about leadership development in first-gen students. As I was thinking about this, I, I really – I was thinking that you know there there at times may be a need for some additional creativity when thinking about connecting first-gen students with leadership development work. Um, you know, if you think back to the steps that I mentioned before, uh, that many of them may come from low so not all of them, but many of them may come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, you know that that means that they may also have a tendency to work more hours than their continuing generation peers. Mm-hmm. And then if you couple that with data that we have about first-hand students typically participating in student organization activities at lower rates than continuing generation peers, it's really important to realize that they may not be showing up to traditional leadership programs that most schools host in the same numbers or in the same ways that their continuing generation peers are. Uh, So just really being cognizant. That there, that there may be a need to find opportunities to incorporate leadership development with them in day-to-day conversations when they're in our offices. And so I think, you know, we have really found that through the relationships that we build with them when they come in for a question about financial aid or inquiring about student organizations or, you know, if they're struggling with a test that they just took and they want somebody to talk to about that, having those conversations is what, first lays important groundwork to be able to build relationships with them to then open the door to have some more developmental conversations down the road that we can infuse leadership in. Um, so I think that, that is, that's an important an important realization that is something to think about in terms of working with students, first-gen students in leadership.
0: Yeah, thinking about how we can incorporate this leadership education into every conversation, not just saying we're going to have a program, but how do you do it through that relationship? I think yeah, yeah. that sounds really important.
1: And and that's not to say don't don't host the programs, right? Oh, it's, sure. it's 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 more of a a deeper awareness of what some of the experiences are that students who are first gen, you know, live from day to day and recognizing that that Again, going back to the concept I mentioned before, we, we need to meet them where they're at because they're not always based on things that they have going on in their lives. They may not be able to show up where we are when we're waiting for them you know, in the room at 5 o'clock.
0: <laughs> mm,
1: yeah. um, so being mindful of that, I think, is important. So I was recently talking with a colleague. Uh, her name is Brittany Abraham, and and she is doing great work with First Gen students also here at GW. Um, and And when she and I were sitting down to talk more about what it means to develop leadership in students and, and our experiences with first-gen students. Um, spoiler alert, we do have a program proposal in for the NASPA conference in June to talk more about this topic as well. So uh, if we get accepted, you can come hear more from us there. Uh, hey, that's,
0: a, that's a good plug. I appreciate that. <laughs>
1: that's if That's a NIF, right? Because those announcements haven't been, been made yet. But So she and I sat down and um, you know, we came up with some some milestones to keep in mind, or some phases, I will say, you know, when when working through leadership development with first-hand students. And based, you know, primarily on our the work that we've been doing here at GW. And, you know, one of the things that we we think is really important in addition to, you know, our role primarily with them through the student activities lens is, is building community with them, right? So that's mm. that's one of the main focuses of our work. In addition to that, um, you know, we also focus on resource development and um, connecting them with resources and connecting them with their peers, with staff and faculty throughout the university so that they build that support network. So one of the things that we do is start by laying groundwork and teaching them about growth mindset. So helping students really understand that we grow, you know, we grow the most when our brains are challenged and that our brain is much more like a muscle. The more that it's used, the stronger it gets. And so really kind of teaching this growth mindset mentality to them when they come in, you know, so that they understand that um, through some important practices like visualization and practice, we can become stronger in areas that we are learning to grow in. And that can be good foundational information to come back to as they continue to have new experiences that may be challenging to them in your work Mm -hmm. with them as, you know, if you're thinking of a four-year lifespan of a typical college student, maybe more, six years. Sure. Um, We've seen that that's been a helpful foundation to lay and then kind of revisit through our work with them. Um, So that's that's a good kind of place to begin thinking around this. Another thing to address that, um, the zone of proximal development, is by teaching, um, by building skills and really teaching them around those skills. So recognizing what are those areas and skills that they may be less familiar with and related to leadership, which we'll get into a little bit, too, as we continue, and providing them tools and resources and knowledge around that. So, you know, spending those teaching moments with them. Then thinking about kind of moving to a place where you're continuing to advance their learning by helping them with meaning-making around those experiences, whether it be with a professor or with peer leaders um, and these are moments that you can kind of have those leadership conversations when when you have those moments where they might feel challenged around that. Yeah. Um, so those are some some key places to start. And one of the other things that we've also noticed is that it has been really powerful in our work with them to address imposter syndrome, which is is the feeling that some first gen students feel when, they have that sense that there's information that they don't have that's, or information that's different than what their peers come in. Their peers, they have this perception or it feels like, you know, their peers come in knowing exactly what to do and how to navigate a university and, you know, they know all the terms that we're using and and some first gen students may not be as familiar with, you know, what a FAFSA form is or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what a registrar is or what a provost is. Again, going back to that jargon that we use a lot within higher education. Um, but, you know, it's come up in conversations with 1st students, and, and actually going back to that student that I was mentioning before when I was talking about putting together my thoughts for this podcast, he, he talked about it as something that it, that he has, that was very helpful for him to identify because there was a way to understand what that what that gap was that felt like a big, sometimes it felt like a big gap in his experience, and so, you know, and then he really had a, very powerful conversation about how that has at times impacted his mental health and, and, and academics and and that you know so just helping students provide a way to recognize it and, and then resources around that is important. Um, so that's one of the things that we've seen as powerful in this work too and, and all of these are different things that you'll see with throughout work with first gen students and are important to, again, being able to understand the, the lay of the land so that you can then lay the groundwork of other leadership skills in your work in various ways.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely.
1: So those have been some important things. And then, you know, a couple other things that we've noticed too is really encouraging involvement in experiential education. So as a way to connect them with opportunities to practice skills and information in a that they've been gathering through those conversations or, you know, if they're able to attend workshops But doing it in a place that is a safe environment for them to really practice that is going to be important. Uh, And then, you know, knowing that there will be new challenges and new faces and new tests and uh, things that will come up, really encouraging resilience in them. And and really just going back to that growth mindset philosophy, uh, thinking about it in the sense of, honoring their strengths, and recognizing that, and, and really just reminding them of that, that you see that, that if it's a moment that they are struggling with that and not seeing it, you see that in them, and being that mirror for them is, is really powerful and has been impactful with our work. Um, and then a couple other things that I would mention in terms of kind of these phases of work um, is, is the importance of connecting them to other high-impact practices. As a means for leadership development, so you know, thinking about study abroad, for example, um, we found that there is not a high percentage of first-generation students at our institution who are engaging right now with study abroad op- with a study abroad experience, and and w- and are trying to dig into what what that is about. So, partnering with their office to, to do more around that, and then hosting workshops and helping students um get connected to that information as an opportunity because we know that's a high impact practice. Yeah. Through which you can learn so much about yourself as a person or as a leader. Um and just knowing how impactful that can be is so important.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I like what you said about it. I think sometimes our role there is just to be that connector and to help them, you know, find those practices, find those opportunities and take advantage of them.
1: That is certainly what we are what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um So I think, you know, the last thing I would say is is as you kind of reach that end of their time here as a student as an undergrad, thinking about how do we help them talk about, how do we help them make sense of the experiences that they have had as leaders, how do we help them talk about it so that they can land that job that they are feeling is so important to deliver for their family. They're the first ones who have attended college they've never, you know, they've never walked into that space of having those interviews and having come from a family that you might be able to coach them through that. So how do we help them understand those leadership opportunities that they've had, how they've grown, what they've learned, and then how to articulate that in an interview process so that they stand out from other candidates? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think those are some, you know, if you want to think of those as phases or or spaces to move through, I think the other thing that... that she and I were talking about as we were kind of collecting our thoughts around this was that this is not, it's important to think of this as more of a continual process and less of a linear process, right? So Mm. this isn't a list that we check off neatly and that, you know, step one, we got them from growth mindset and now they're here. We're all human, right? So both as a student has different experiences and challenges and amazing learning opportunities and exciting um, experiences along their way as being a college student, you know, they they may need to have reminders about this. We as staff may also need to move back and forth between these areas and their experience and um, you know share reminders with them about growth mindset or encouraging resilience. So um, that's kind of a new way that we've begun thinking about about that work um, but offers kind of a different lens to look at that through.
0: Absolutely. You know, I think based off of that, one of the things that you and I have talked about is the importance of building cultural capital for first-generation students. What are some things that we as educators may take for granted in leadership development that are important not to forget or not to ignore as we're working with these students?
1: Yeah, I think that that is such an important question. Um, There are definitely some cultural differences to be aware of in work around leadership development when working with first-gen students. and So bear with me for a second here, because one of the things that I often talk about in my work is something that I, I try to show visually, but since we're just having a conversation, sure. um, <laughs> I don't have the opportunity to, to give you a visual on this, so bear with me. I'll try to, good, try to uh, use that word. a good exercise in
0: imagination, yeah.
1: <laughs> so if you were to imagine a scale from A to Z, and then, you know, each letter is a different point on that, or a different point from A to Z, we as higher ed educators often expect that students are going to come into college at some point well into that alphabet scale for the sake of really trying to to help create a good explanation here. We'll just say the the letter L, right? So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: professors and staff engage with students at this place, assuming that they're all at the same point of L on that scale when they come in as first-year students. However, what we see experientially with many of our first-gen students who are coming from families in which college is not a norm, they may be entering the conversation at a different point, say, you know, maybe E on the scale.
0: Yeah.
1: And when that happens, you know, what's happening is that they're, they're, it's, it's more of a challenge to be fully present about the conversation that's happening at point L because they're trying to fill in all the points between E and L. Um, that that they perceive that their peers have and that they don't, and so that's where some of that imposter syndrome comes in. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that's a helpful way to think about it. I mean, essentially, this is really what Vygotsky talks about in his theory of the zone of proximal development, right? Yeah. Um, it's just kind of a different way to, to to conceptualize it. So why I think that's important to this work is that it's important for us as higher ed educators to recognize when that's happening. Right, and meet students where they are at and, and meet them where they're at and then fill in some of that information so that they can be fully active at that point of L in the conversation versus E.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the challenges that any of us who have done work with first-year students can, can relate to is, you know, it, it would make life really easy if the you know, Center for First Generation Student Success would come out and say, every first-generation student enters at point E, and so you just need to design your program at that. But that's, right. that's not the case, right? Some are at C. Some might come in at Q, you know. And right, so, right,
1: right, uh, right, right, because we're all human.
0: <laughs> that's Right. Right, yeah, yeah. That's why we have jobs, I guess, is to to be the people (laughs) to figure that out.
1: Yeah, so that's good for us some days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, if you take this further and and kind of apply that uh, practically, you know, how you might see this play out is that there's a lot of really unspoken rules in mainstream majority American culture that if you come from a family that's raised in a different culture – or you don't come from a family who's been exposed to work environments or schools where you see this played out this may be totally new territory for you so mm-hmm. you know some of the things that we hold up as behaviors that a leadership engage a leader engages in may be new territory for some of these students so things like you know speaking up and being heard and projecting your voice to stand out or looking people in the eye when you shake their hands Or certain ways of dressing, you know, like dressing more formally, especially for specific events. Yeah. You might also see it in, you know, certain ways of acting at elite or, you know, special events. Taking initiative. These are all things that when people act in those ways, in American culture, we really, you know, we often tend to say, oh, they're really, they're a leader and look at them go, Mm -hmm. look at them stand with such confidence. And our job, I think, as as educators working with first gen students who we hope to develop as leaders, is to realize that some of our first gen students don't come in with that knowledge or experiences that have taught them that. And so so we' gotta we gotta be cognizant of that and then share information around that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's interesting because Stevens um, has some interesting work that he's done um, and, and the other researchers that he worked with around uh, how American universities focus on independence and how that focus undermines performance in first-gen students. And they propose what they call a cultural mismatch theory, which asserts that the middle-class norms of American universities are a mismatch to the interdependent standards that are typically associated with first-gen students who come mostly from working-class backgrounds. So it's kind of a... new you know that's a that's a particular niche within the first gen community and and certainly shouldn't be applied to all first gen students but it's it's certainly aligned with what we've seen in our day-to-day experiences of working with them as well
0: it's really interesting and i think you're right made a valid such an important point to understand and and that mismatch is going to have some pretty serious implications i would guess
1: right right and you know and so i think it's i think it's helpful to to be aware of that so then we can be prepared to respond as educators and, and student and staff and faculty who are committed to to students succeeding and, and seeing them complete their degree yeah so you know I think in addition to not only recognizing that going back to some of these thoughts that I mentioned before, giving them a safe space to practice that that new skill around leadership is really important and and frankly that's what that's what college is about, is that this is the time to figure out who you are as a leader and who you are as a person and, and to be able to practice some of those things that may be totally new to you, regardless of your background. Um, so really being mindful to do that through you know, connecting them with student organization opportunities or workshops, workshops that you might be teaching, just to provide that space and time to be able to practice that for first-gen students is really important
0: yeah absolutely. and And you talked about this idea of imposter syndrome, which which is a very real issue that many of our students face and and sometimes many of our colleagues do as well. How do we help students you know work through uh, these issues of of imposter syndrome?
1: So one of the ways that we work to address that at gW is is really by continual and intentional messaging to students that the that they belong here, right? Mm-hmm. So, Really sharing that that thought that you were admitted for a reason because you are a very, you know, stellar student who is resilient and has had these amazing life experiences or these challenging life experiences, life experiences nonetheless, you're here for a reason and we want you here. And then reinforcing that in regular communications that we have with them through newsletters, one-on-one meetings that we have and, and, and throughout our programs. And we've even done it by having the president of the university speak and share that same message at events that he attends with them, so sharing that they were admitted for a reason and that we we really welcome their important life experiences with their differences because we recognize that that makes us such a stronger university community. Mm-hmm. We happen to currently have a president who is a first-gen um, student himself, so that is even more powerful um, in terms of students really being able to see, you know, wow, look what can happen for my life if I continue in these moments that are hard. So I think that that has been, you know, we've heard from them, that's been very powerful to be able to hear that message from him.
0: Yeah, what a phenomenal was, role model. That's that's incredible. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I would also say that, you know, we've had the opportunity to, we've taken the opportunity to identify faculty and staff at the institution who are first generation and giving them either an identifiable button sticker, door sign, something that they can display so that students can see that. We've also created a map where students can see, you know, I'm going to the library. Oh, there's a staff member here who's first gen, you know, and then mm. and then it puts a pin on that and then gives their um, a few things about their information in terms of how to connect with them. But, you know, giving them a way to see that they are not alone in their experience and that, you know, this is what persistence has led to for other people's lives who come from a similar background as me can be a really powerful and helpful tool um, as it comes, you know, in regards to imposter syndrome. You know, and I think, I think beyond that, just really trying to find opportunities to help students find community around this identity so that they can find a network of support is, is just really important with this. And frankly, I'd say the same is true for supporting colleagues as well. You know, I think a lot of times in our work we say, you don't know what you don't know, and, and that's okay, but let's get you connected to others who may know, you know, something more about that topic so that you can learn and grow from it and know that too. Um, and so those are things that, that come to mind, you know, when you ask that question, but I think it's such an important question.
0: Yeah I love that that idea just of this messaging to all of our students just continually reinforcing you belong here you were brought to this institution for a reason and and you look different and so but that difference is part of why you belong here and you bring something unique to the table that we would be missing if you weren't here I just think there's or, such power and in and that
1: and maybe you don't look different but your your experiences are different or right, yeah. you know, something else is um, is something that makes you unique. Um, yeah, it's been it's been very powerful as a staff member who's very, I think you can see interested and in, in committed to this work with first gen students to you know be present at that event and hear hear those words echoed by a president, the you know the top official um, within the university saying to students, "I was in your seat and and I know what that's like and and there's going to be times where things Things may seem, uh, you know, a little bit different than what your peers are experiencing, but hang in there and know that we're here for you and we want to connect with you and and we believe in you. That's such a powerful message. Yeah.
0: Well, this has been really inspiring, really exciting. Um, So one last question for you, Bridget. Uh, Tell me, what's, what's the next question about leadership that you're thinking about?
1: Whew! That's, you, no small questions with you today, John. Mark. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, I'm just basically I'm trying to get ideas for future podcasts. This is what we do. So please do my work for me here.
1: I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you came forward with that because I, I I I saw through that with that question. I guess <laughs> um, might as well
0: be transparent. I guess. But yeah. I'm going to
1: set you up with that, so don't worry. Awesome. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, very honestly, I, I, and 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 it might have a lot to do with my surroundings, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, of being being where I am in the nation and, and all of the dialogue that goes along with that. But really thinking about how we continue to teach our students about how to be ethical leaders when they have grown up seeing so many wall street scandals and political leaders forgo ethics in their decision-making.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: And, you know, I'm just really interested in hearing more about that, hearing what other people are doing around that, you know, and it just seems to be an ever evolving and ever present theme in the world today. And, and frankly, what we need more of in, in the world, which is, is something that calls both of us to this work, is to is to work with students to help develop them into ethical leaders. Um, yep. So I look forward to uh, hearing more about that on a future podcast.
0: <laughs> that's great. No, because I, I wish we could say, you know, all of these people have been publicly disgraced, so therefore we don't have to worry about everybody now understands the importance of ethics. But that's right. probably not the reality, right? And so. Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, well, that's a great topic. Well, hey, thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast, which is presented by the NASA Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. Huge thanks to uh, Bridget Belling for joining us today. Give me a ton to think about. Very exciting uh, and inspirational for this work that we do. Uh, if you are interested in more information about the knowledge community, you can get more information on our social media outlets, including Facebook at slash salead. You can follow us on Twitter at NASA. NASPA SLPKC or on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. Uh, you can also get connected with me on Twitter or Instagram at John Mark Day uh, or you can connect with Bridget on Twitter which is at BBEHLINGDC. You can also get more information on the NASPA Center for First Gen Student Success at firstgen.naspa.org. And if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast, if you have a great solution to teaching ethics and leadership in an era of Wall Street scandals, or have other ideas for topics or people we should be talking to, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at leaderpodcast at gmail.com. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so great to talk with you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. This was really, really an interesting and invigorating conversation, so I
0: appreciate it. Absolutely. And, And thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time.